feature with Bible study and that is through a website at www.speakpipe.com that's S-P-E-A-K-P-I-P-E dot com slash Monday Night Bible Study all one word you go there to that webpage and there's a button that you can toggle and you can leave us what would appear to be a voicemail and we'd love to hear from you could be just saying hi or maybe you have a question about Bible study, or maybe you have a comment, or you just want to tell us where you're from. But we'd love to hear from you. could be something good God's doing in your life. So drop us a line, uh, leave us a message, and we'll endeavor to play that at our next Bible study. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to Bible study. Hi. It's uh, good to see you tonight. Here on a Monday. Yay. Yes. Thanks for coming. Let's take a few moments and ask God's blessing on our time. And we'll get uh, moving forward. Father, thank you for being here. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. Thank you for your power. Thank you for your anointing. Thank you for your authority. Thank you, God, that you're our teacher. We ask God that you would teach us tonight, that we'd have ears to hear what the Holy Spirit is saying. I pray, Father, that you'd reveal and that we'd receive. And I pray that you would challenge us tonight. I pray for some change in us. Spirit change, some heart change change of mind, change of will, change of perspective, God, to be open to what you want to say and what you want to do. We give you thanks. And these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 As we start, I just want to, as a reminder, to invite you to stay afterwards. We're going to be praying over the intern class of this year. And we'll look forward to that and uh, see what God has to say as we pray and we'll prophesy over them to conclude their intern year. Uh, congratulations to you both. Uh, you did a great job. And uh, yeah, pray for the best as we uh, take some time afterwards to do that. So, looking forward to it. If you have your Bibles uh, or electronic device or you need a Bible, you can pick one up off the table. We're going to look at 2 Samuel chapter 8. 2 Samuel chapter 8. 2 Samuel chapter 8 and verse 2 as you're heading there. 
people overseas. Uh, see some messages from them. Uh, very thankful that Sunday service is back online and uh, able to listen to that together. And so we'll be getting our Monday Bible study back up also. And thankful that people are listening and that people are receiving and uh, getting some good word from it. So, Second Samuel chapter 8 and verse 2. Somebody read that, please. And he defeated Moab, and he measured them with a line, making them lie down on the ground. Two lines he measured to be put to death, and one full line to be spared. And the Moabites became servants to David and brought tribute. Alright, thanks for reading that. Kind of a weird verse, right? Yeah. Um, this is David, talking about David and something that happened uh, during his time there as king. And uh, what's being described there is a practice of Eastern kings that was somewhat familiar to the people of his day. It wasn't something that was done necessarily by the kings of Israel or Judah, but it was something that was familiar to the people of that region. And it was a practice that they would follow, that uh, they would defeat an enemy, and after they defeated the enemy, they would have, they would measure, and so what that means is, is that they would have the enemies lay down side by side, and a line would be stretched over their enemies as they're laying on the ground side by side. And so that's what was being shown there. And what was happening in this particular story is that this line, you could think of it as a three equal parts, that you had people laying side by side on the ground, a line was stretched over them, that was one measurement. A line was stretched over another group of people laying, group of men laying side by side on the ground, that was another measurement. And then what's described as a full line was measured over a third group, and that was the third measurement that you see there. And so the first two measurements of the people laying side by side, the men laying side by side, that they were killed. And then the third full measurement, that group of people were left alive. That group of men were left alive. So these were likely members of the military that had been defeated. Some of your Bibles, if you have a different version than what was read out of, it might say that David, that he smoked Moab. All right, a good smiting going on there. I guess Moab, or some of your Bibles may say he subdued them. And the, the practice that's described there uh, in the smiting of Moab and the subduing of Moab, it, it's more than just a defeat. It's more than just taking an army and saying, okay, I beat you, you're done, you're defeated. They were literally being subdued. And that was the purpose behind the way uh, this, uh, what you see happening here with the measuring line took place. Was that it had a purpose in it to leave a lasting effect. And the idea behind it was is that this, the, the practice of Moab, what they had done, was so grievous, the thing that they had offended Israel in, or offended David in, was so grievous, that he wanted them to remember their defeat. And so the way that he chose to do that, the severe way that he chose to do that, was in the measuring line, and in the practice that I just described to you. So, so what happened? And, and this is a valid question because 
uh, Israel and the people had been friendly toward Moab. They had friendly relations with Moab for quite a long time. And part of that was the command of God that when Israel came into the promised land, God told them to leave Moab alone. And the reason was is that Moab, they were the descendants of Lot. And remember you had Abraham, and then you had his nephew Lot, and they had uh, come into the land together, and Sodom and Gomorrah took place, all of that. Well, Lot ended up, his descendants ended up in Moab. And so the Moabites were descended from him. And so as the people of Israel moved into the Promised Land, as they moved into Canaan, that was one of the things that God spoke to them. He said, you got to leave the Moabites alone. And so they did. And, and they had friendly relations with them. We know that David uh, has, a, has a relative, a predecessor, in his line that was a Moabite. Anybody know who that was? Who's the only Moabite you know from the Bible? Anybody? Ruth. Ruth, right. So Ruth was uh, one of the people in David's line, uh, one of his ancestors. So so he may have, you know, had some relationship based on that. Because, I mean, you know, when you're whatever, however many generations were before, but when your great-great-great-great-grandmother's from Moab, maybe you're friendly toward Moab, or however many grandmothers or whatever it would be. So, so there are reasons why they've been friendly, but as you see here, something, something changed. Something happened. And so, we don't necessarily know exactly what happened, but there were, according to Jewish tradition, and the rabbis that wrote commentary on the Old Testament scriptures, according to their tradition, what had happened was, is that the Moabites had broken trust with David. And the way that they had broken trust with David is that they had put his father and his mother to death. What had happened was that when uh, David was on the run from Saul, David's parents went to the Moabites, and the Moabites gave them sanctuary. They gave them protection. You can look up, somebody look at uh, 1 Samuel 22. First Samuel 22. And verses 3 and 4. Anybody read those? From there David went to Mizpah and Moab and said to the king of Moab, Would you let my father and mother come and stay with you until I learn what God will do for me? So he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him as long as David was in the stronghold. Okay. So... We understand that David had put his parents into their trust, and again, I don't have any way to know what really had happened here, or what had taken place, or why the relationship between David and Moab had soured, but again, this is just traditional, that what had happened was they had broken his trust, and, and it had killed his parents. Now, that would explain to me at least, why you see this harsh and severe reaction to them. Okay, that would make sense to me. 
I don't know if you know this. I mean, David was a man after God's own heart. David was a, a musician, a songwriter, a singer, a dancer. I mean, he was very artistic in those ways. He, he had, certainly had that side of who he was. But he also was a warrior. And he was somebody that I don't know that I'd really want to mess with his mom or dad. Okay? And that's just, I'm just being honest, you know, having studied the life of David for a lot of years. I'm not sure he'd be the guy that I would hurt his mom or his dad. And so something happened, and you can take that for what it's worth, which, I, I, like I said, I can't vouch for it or anything else to tell you what I, I read in the commentary of this, but I want you to understand something happened. That, that, that things went from friendly to not friendly at all. And they went from life to death very quickly. And as these enemies were defeated, as a point was made with them through the laying down on the ground through the measuring line, David meant for this to be something that would be passed out from generation to generation. He meant for this to be something that would be something that they would remember for a long time to come. And he meant for it to be something, a message, that would resound over time. And that's why he did what he did. Now what does that have to do with us? Okay, what does that have to do with us has more to do with our spiritual life. What this has to do with us has more to do with how we handle our business when it comes to our enemy, the devil. How we handle our business when it comes to the demonic. How we handle our business when it comes to his attacks. When it comes to strongholds in our life. When it comes to the things that the devil tries to push our way in order to destroy us. That's what it has to do with. And that's where the lesson lies with us. I mean, none of us are kings. None of us are in charge of vast armies. None of us lived 2,000 years ago. None of us are going to give the command and, and go and destroy a whole army's nation or anything like that. But we have our own battle. And our battle has to do with our own lives. Has to do with who we are, has to do with where we come from. Has to do with the way that we interact with our world, the way we interact with the, the supernatural world of God. And so we have some battling to do. David invaded Moab. And so I want you to think about that for a second. He was not on the defensive when he came to his enemy. But he went to and he took the fight to them. And when you invade a land, which is what he did, back then, it was imperative that you begin to take down strongholds, fortresses, cities with walls. Those are areas that, as you're going through a land, that you need to take care of your business with. And so, as David went through the land, you could never say that he had won the battle or he won the war until he had taken care of some of the strongholds, until he had taken care of some of the fortresses, until he had taken care of some of the walled cities. So they would, if by all means, indicate if you're going to say that you've won this war, you're going to say that you've conquered this land, that means that you've got to 
tear down the walls and tear down the strongholds and tear down the fortresses that are part of that land. Keep your finger in 2 Samuel, but somebody look in 2 Corinthians 10. 2 Corinthians 10 4. Familiar verses. Ten Corinthians ten four. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. All right. Thanks for reading that. You can read the rest of that. Uh, it comes. Yeah, it, it comes before or after, however you want to see that. But what I want you to understand is that. When you read in the Old Testament, you read about battles, you read about strategies, you read about how God's people went about being victory. It doesn't matter if you're talking about Joshua, or you're talking about David, or you're talking about Elijah or Elisha, or you're talking about whoever you want from the Old Testament, there's certain, uh, what I believe to be lessons that can be learned. For example, we take certain lessons from when Israel was fighting and they're told, okay, so you're being led and want the tribe of Judah to go first. Okay, that was the strategy that they had to send Judah first. Well, the word Judah means praise. And so a lot of the way that we understand spiritual warfare comes from that lesson. Is that we're going to go into battle, what comes first? Who goes first? Praise does. Right. So worship and praise become part of our strategy when it comes to spiritual warfare. In the, in also in the Psalms you read about how the, in the, the Psalms describe instruments being used in warfare, like musical instruments being used in warfare, or singing, going before the battle, and how when singing went before the battle, the enemies of God were confused and they ran, and there was, there was a victory without ever there being a sword swung or a spear flung or arrows released, but just through the singing and just through the, the playing of instruments. Uh, certain songs give instruction on the playing of instruments. They give instruction on how music is a part of our warfare and is part of the battle. And so it's important that we take hold of some of the principles from the Old Testament and begin to apply them to our lives now. You look at what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Interesting stuff there. Because while it's not talking about a physical battle, it's not talking about us rising up as a church and taking it to our enemies in any physical way, it does describe a battle taking place on a spiritual level. It describes battles taking place, not only battles, but also familiar things from battle, like strongholds or fortresses. Walled cities, enemies, using familiar terms that people would understand. And so lifting those lessons from the Old Testament, lifting those understandings from the Old Testament is a part of who we are and a part of what we do. Because we have real enemies. We have real enemies when we talk about the Spirit. Now I talked a little bit about this on Sunday, but I, I really want to speak to this in the sense that we have enemies 
The devil is our enemy. Alright? And we read a verse yesterday about how he's like a roaring lion. He's prowling around. He's seeking whom he may devour. And he's called directly there, our enemy. And so as you look at that, we have an enemy. And he has demonic forces under his authority that are also, because they're attached to him and under his authority, our enemies also. And so there are certain things, certain uh, strategies that God gives on how to bring defeat to those forces in our lives. Because if you don't believe you're in a battle, you're going to lose. I just want to say that. If you don't know you're in a fight, you're going to lose. Okay? Alright? That's why you're standing there like, I don't believe in fighting. And someone hits you up out of the head with a skateboard, alright? You done? Okay? And so whether you believe it or you don't believe it, you think it, you don't think it, it's part of your personality, it's not part of your personality, I don't know. Alright, I can't answer any of those questions, but the spiritual reality to what I'm saying is clear. And if you're that kind of a person where you're, well, I don't believe in this. Okay. And you're going to get knocked upside the head with a spiritual skateboard and you're going to be done. Close your eyes, plug your ears, and hope for the best. <laughs> but that doesn't mean it's going to go well. God is training us for battle. It's a spiritual battle. He's equipping us for battle. It's a spiritual battle. He's empowering us for battle. It's a spiritual battle. <laughs> and when things change in the spirit, in the spiritual realm, things change in the physical realm. When freedom comes in the spiritual realm, when chains are broken, when lives are set at liberty in the spiritual realm, things change in the physical realm. They just do it. They just do it. There are times where I see certain things in a spiritual realm taking place. Certain things, certain changes taking place. And I know that something's going to change in the physical realm. I may not know when, I may not know exactly what it's going to look like, but I know something is going to change. I was standing in my kitchen recently, and it was me and June and the kids, and I looked at the kids, and I was like, hey kids, I said, something has just changed. Something's just changed. Like where? Like, you know, out there. <laughs> and more spice is like, good, something needs to change out here. I'm like, you're right. It really does. And like I said, I don't, I don't always know when, or I don't always know how it's going to look like, but I just know when something changes. And, and I want to encourage you that it seems like sometimes when we're doing this spiritual warfare, and it's hard to connect the dots between what we're doing in the spiritual realm, what's happening in the physical realm. But all I can say is I can assure you that they are connected. It may just not be as direct a connection as you want it to be. It may not 
manifest the way that you want it to manifest. It may not look like what you want it to look like, but that doesn't mean it's not happening, because it is happening. And we need to take seriously our role in all of this, because God places us in a position where he's teaching and training us in this role. And he wants us to understand. He wants us to participate. He wants us to be a part of this. I don't know if you've noticed, but when it comes to God in our lives, He's very hands-on. And He wants us to be very hands-on to the things that are happening around us. The popular notion 250 years ago was that God was very hands-off. But I don't believe that. I don't believe He's very hands-off. I don't believe He's just letting us figure it out. I don't believe it's just whatever happens, happens. I think that we have an active role to play. I think that we have an active part in what's taking place around us. Whether it has to do with our family, our friends, whether it has to do with our church, our neighborhood, whether it has to do with our region, our nation, our world, we have a part to play in all of that. We have a part to play in, in when things are going on around us, when things are happening in our proximity. We have a role to play in that. And to step away from that, or to close our eyes and plug our ears and say, yeah, no, yeah, I'm just I'm checking out. Well, again, that's when you get hit in the head with a skateboard. And it just doesn't go well. And if that's your personality, you're going to need to fight that. You're really going to need to fight that. You're going to be like, oh, Andy, I'm not very confrontational. You're going to need to fight that. Andy, I really don't like this kind of stuff. Okay, this stuff I don't like either. You're going to need to fight that. Alright? You're going to need to fight it. Because... Whatever it is that God has for us, whatever that role is, whatever it is that God has for you as an individual, part of what God has for you as an individual is that He wants to train you in His ways. And part of training you in His ways is to understand this aspect of life. There's no mistake, there's no denying. Look at some of the things that Jesus said. I saw Satan falling from heaven like lightning. Really? You think he had anything to do with that? Probably. He demanded, Peter, he demanded for you to sift you as wheat, but I prayed for you. You don't see the battle? I've given you authority to trample upon snakes and scorpions and over every work of the enemy. You don't see the battle? Take a, take a day and just read the, the gospel and look how many times Jesus cast out demons out of people. Seriously. Just take a day and read it. Or start reading it tonight. Every single time. Just take note. Oh, he cast out a demon. He rebuked an evil spirit. Oh, look what he did. And you look at the sheer number of demonic interactions that Jesus had taking authority over the devil, taking authority over demons, it's shocking, but it's a part of his life. 
part of his ministry. It is undeniable. People don't want to hear that, but it's the truth. People don't want to deal with that, but that's a major part of his ministry. A major part of his ministry was the defeat of the demonic and the defeat of demons over people's lives to set them free. And if that was a major part of his ministry, whose ministry are we doing? Jesus's? Now we his body now? Didn't he anoint us with the same Holy Spirit? Didn't he send us forth? All authority has been given me in heaven and earth, go ye therefore. Didn't he say that? Didn't he begin to train them by sending out the twelve and the seventy or the seventy-two? Give them authority over demons? Yeah, he did. You see, all of these things, he was training them for the days, the weeks, the months, and the years ahead. That's what he was training them in. You can say, hey, well, why does he want us to know this stuff? I don't care. I don't care. I could, I could come up with a guess, but it doesn't matter. The point is, is that that's what he did. And everybody's like, oh, well, he's our example. Yeah, that's right, he's our example. Yeah, we should follow after him. Yep, yep, Jesus, we should follow after him. That's right. Well, a major part of his ministry was fighting the devil. Right? And so if you, if that's just, if you, if you're like, yeah, yeah, Jesus, our example. Oh, yeah, we're Christians. We're Christ-like. Don't be Christ-like. Well, a major part of our ministry is going to be the defeat of the enemy. And they go hand in hand. When I, when I travel in different parts of the world, the darker it gets in those parts of the world, the more warfare that needs to take place. And as warfare takes place in those parts of the world, miracles happen. People are set free. People are delivered. That's the way it is. The devil came to steal and to kill and to destroy. And if we're going to destroy the works of the devil, we're going to do it, what you're going to be in to see are people that are going to be healed, they're going to be restored, and they're going to be set free. You're going to be people who come to know Jesus. People that can see, that couldn't see. People that can hear, that couldn't hear. People that can speak, that couldn't speak. People that can walk, that couldn't walk. Because the devil came to destroy their lives. Jesus came to restore their lives. The devil came to steal their life from them. And, and Jesus came that they might have life and that more abundantly. You know, the Bible says that the reason, the reason, and I say, the reason, that Jesus appeared with what? Anybody know the rest of that? Seek and save that which was lost. Destroy the works of the devil. To destroy the works of the devil. Okay. There's a reason for being to destroy the works of the devil. So, why is it important? Well, it's important to him. Why is it important for us as New Testament Christians? Because it was important to Jesus. It was an important part of his ministry. Well, I don't really like that. That's not really my style. Too bad. I don't know what I'll say about it. And so what we need to do is get over that and begin to learn the lesson. What are the lessons? Well, here are the lessons. I don't know if there's any greater warrior in the Old Testament than David. Maybe Joshua. But David was a great warrior. And 
to learn from him and to learn the lessons that he teaches us, I think are important. Here's a, a worshiping, God-loving, God-fearing man after God's own heart. Who's a warrior? We have some lessons to learn. So as you look at this passage, going back to it, as I said, part of conquering a land is going through and destroying strongholds, walled cities, fortresses throughout the land. And as you're going through the land, really, I mean, who are the people you're going to kill? I just want you to think about this for a second. Are you going to kill the people that are submissive, and then they're going to follow after your rules, and they commit themselves to you and to you being king over the land, or, or, is it the obstinate, the rebellious, the ones that are still going to fight you, and the ones that are still going to reject you, and the mercy that you may want to show them, which one do you think you're going to kill? The obstinate, right? Yeah. And, and so as he went through the land, I want you to think about this. If this is a liberal understanding of what happened, two-thirds of the people were killed. The obstinate. Those that would reject mercy. Those that would reject grace. Now, in our lives, there are certain things that need to be true. And this needs to start with us. It needs to start with who we are as, as the people of God. And that's this. God does not call you to be obstinate against Him. But He calls you to submission. And I know people hate that word, man. They hate that word, submission. When it comes to God, submission is really life to us. It really is. It is the life that God offers us. It's the life that God gives us. It's the life that, that God puts before us and gives us an opportunity to live. I mean, we can call it whatever we want. I'm accepting His will. Okay. Well, you just submitted to His will. Well, I accept His word over my life. I, I'm accepting who He says that I am. Well, in reality, you're going to submit to who He says that you are. Because you've got your opinion. You've already exercised your opinion about who you are. You're exercising your opinions about who you think you're supposed to be or who you think that, that you're going to be or whatever the rest of that kind of stuff is. But when the bottom line comes around, here is the bottom line, is that God has a will for your life. God has a purpose for your life. God has a plan for your life. God's will is being revealed in your life. And the real bottom line of all of that is we need to find our place and find our point in our life where we can begin to submit to those things in our life. His purpose, His plan, His will, His vision. Make it our vision. But those are the things that we really need to take hold of in our life. And even though we hate the word, even though we, we don't like to hear about it, the, the real, at least as far as I'm concerned, 
the, the valid part of it is that that's the reality of who we are. And and I know that's old-fashioned, and I should probably use a better word for it, and, I, and probably on Sunday I would. But just because it's Monday Night Bible study, I just tell you. You know, I, I tell you. Yeah, I don't know if you ever noticed that, you know, we, we tend to like to use words like, you know, you should um, agree with God. Or, or you should, there's all these little things that we do. Or God's asking you to do this. Well, a lot of times he's just telling you. Alright? And we can make it nicer to say he's asking you, but he is telling you. And yeah, you do have a choice. Of course you do. We all have choices. We all have choices to make. And, and then, I'm not disagreeing with that. That's what free will is all about. But that doesn't mean he asks. That doesn't mean he's, he's begging it up. That doesn't mean he's soliciting your opinion on it either. But he just says what he says. He does what he does. He commands what he commands. And we have a choice to make. All of us. And sometimes we choose to submit, and sometimes we choose not to. But if there is in you, and I want you to hear me, if there's an obstinate streak in you when it comes to God, you need to deal with that. You really need to deal with that. Because that will lead to your destruction. All you got to do is look at David. Was they going through this land with the Moabites? How many were obstinate? How many were rebellious? Two-thirds. Right? That's a pretty big majority. Pretty big majority of people that were laying on the ground defeated, still obstinate. Two-thirds have been disarmed. Still, I won't do what you tell me. Alright. And two-thirds lost their lives. They were destroyed through that. One-third, and this was the big one-third, the full length of the line, were spared. And part of the reason they were spared is because they had enough sense to take the mercy that was being extended to them. They had enough sense to accept what was happening and receive the mercy that David extends to all of them. To come in line with him, to come in line with his way, and to come in line with who he was. Now, Jesus knows that we have struggles. He knows. Somebody look at uh, Philippians 2. I mean, let's look at Jesus for a second. Philippians 2, verses 6 and 7. And I want you to look at Jesus here, and I want you to think about it. Philippians 2, 6 and 7. Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Alright, so what that, that's the whole kenosis there. And kenosis is a Greek word, it means to empty yourself out, empty out. 
And that's the whole kenosis of Jesus right there, that He, God, the Word of God, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So, God. And you go down to verse 14 of, of John 1, that was John 1, 1, you go to John 1, 14, and the Word became flesh, and we beheld His glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So there's a transition described in the Gospel of John between John 1, 1 and John 1, 14. And Philippians chapter 2 gives us an even deeper understanding of that in that it tells us that Jesus, as God, as the Word of God, chose to empty himself. Empty himself of what? He emptied himself of everything that made him God. Because there's no other way to explain what happens here. That he emptied himself of what makes him God. Well, omnipotence, omniscience, omnipresence, holiness. You know, those things set apart God for who he is. Well, he emptied himself of those things. And he was found in the flesh. In other words, John 1, 14, the word became flesh. We beheld his glory. He said he took upon himself for a who? A servant. A servant. In other words, what's a servant or a slave? He is under great submission by nature. By nature. Now, why do I say that? Well, I say that because that's the only way we can understand Jesus in any real way. Because he lived the life he lived by the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, we have the power of the Holy Spirit. And he's our true example. If he did the things he did under the power of the Holy Spirit, well, we can do the things he did under the power of the Holy Spirit. He's a true example. If he lived and was tempted at all points like we are, yet without sin, well, if he did that under the anointing and the power of the Holy Spirit, well, we have that same hope in our lives. If, on the other hand, he did that because he was God, we will never, ever attain to that. Never. And he's no longer an example. I choose to believe that Jesus is an example. I choose to believe that he's the perfect example. I choose to believe that, that God anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit with power. And he went about doing good and healing all that who were oppressed of the devil. You hear that? Because God was with him. Well, I think that he empowered us with the same Holy Spirit, and God's with us, and we can go, and we can heal people that are oppressed of the devil. Because God's with us. I choose to believe that. I choose to believe when Jesus said, you've seen the things that I've done, you go and you'll do even greater. I choose to believe that's true. Because I choose to believe that he did those things under the power of the Holy Spirit. The same Holy Spirit He poured into us on the day of Pentecost. I choose to believe that. And I choose to believe that His example, as He became a human being, the example of submission, is the same example that He leaves for us. Taking upon Himself the form, the nature of a servant. That's what he leaves for us. 
This is all stuff nobody wants to hear. But in it lies power and victory. That's where it is. That's where the power is. That's where the victory is. Is in that. And it's so, it's so against what we've been taught, or so against what society says. It's so hard to, to wrap your brain around it, but as Jesus said, if you want to be first, then you have to be servant of all. And he implies in that that there's a power in submission. There's a power in service that's reciprocal. In other words, the more authority comes out of that, the more power comes out of that, the more victory comes out of that. You want to be first, well, you've got to be servant of all. Makes no sense if you think of it the way everybody thinks. But if you allow Jesus, again, the renewing of your mind, the renewing of our minds, that he begins to teach us a new way to think, and so he can transform us, transform the way we see things, transform the way we understand things, transform the way we're going to live our lives, if we take hold of that and let it transform us, then, oh, okay, well, submission is life. Submission is power. Submission is authority. Submission is victory. He taught us that. He modeled it. My meat is to do the will of the one who sent me. What? His whole life, the way he was sustained, the way that he was strengthened, he was strengthened through his submission to the Father. That's life. That's victory. Here it is. And so he knew that we would have struggles with the powers of darkness. How did he know that? Well, he had struggles with the powers of darkness. I mean, did the devil come to him and tempt him directly? Did he show him the kingdoms of the whole earth? Did he take to the top of the temple? Yeah. Wasn't he out in the wilderness? And the devil was tempting him? The devil was testing him? In 40 days he was out there? Fasting? Yeah. He had those types of, of, of encounters, those types of struggles with the enemy. But he knew what to do with it. He knew how to handle it. He gave us an example on how to handle it. He gave us teaching on how to handle it. But it's all those verses we like to ignore. And it's all those verses we don't like to hear. It's all those verses that don't make any sense because we're trying to understand them through the wrong perspective. And so you read them, it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, let's do this. And we find something else to read instead. Jesus somehow gave us the example we need. So we look at uh, 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, 25. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Yeah. Yeah, now notice, Jesus, does he reign? 
Is he reigning? Yeah. King of kings, the Lord of lords. And so he's reigning until when? Until when, according to that verse? Um, all his enemies are under his feet. Right. So he's in the process of putting all his enemies under his feet. Now here's the weird part. We're part of the process. Okay? We're part of that process. And so part of his process of putting all of his enemies under his feet involves us, if we're willing. If you don't close your eyes and plug your ears and just keep getting the head, the head with a skateboard, you could be a part of the process of what he's doing about putting his enemies under his feet. But he's in the process of doing it, of treading them underfoot. And in the process of doing so, he's making us more than conquerors. So what do you say? Um, try Luke 10, uh, 19. Try that. Luke 10, 19. Can't read my writing. I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the powers of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. All right. So Jesus gives us a certain amount of authority. You see that? And so that authority allows us to trample upon snakes and scorpions and over every power of the enemy. Now, what do you think snakes and scorpions represent here? Yeah, evil demons, right? Demonic forces, spiritual wickedness, all right? And so he gives us authority, enough authority, that we can trample upon demons. We can trample upon the works of darkness if we choose to walk in that authority. Now, you don't have to walk in that authority. You don't. You can close your eyes and stop your ears. But on the other hand, that authority is given you. That authority is available to you. That authority is put into your hands so that you begin to move forward and do what? Trample upon snakes and scorpions over every work of the enemy. Now do you see that as being, because we are finite beings, aren't we? We live in a time continuum, don't we? We live minutes and hours and days and weeks and months and years and so this process of trampling upon snakes and scorpions is something that takes place as a part of our lives. It's a process. And so this process, and I want you to follow me here, is part of the process of Jesus putting his enemies under his feet. It's us putting enemies under our feet. Okay? So we've got this job. We've got this authority. If we choose to take it. If we choose to live it. If we choose to exercise it. If we choose to believe it. We have this authority. We have this privilege of participating with Jesus as he rules and reigns. Because he is ruling and reigning. And he can continue to rule and reign until his enemies are put under his feet. And there are things that are beyond us. That's okay. 
I'm sure he'll take care of that. There are things beyond our reach. I'm sure he'll take care of that. There are things beyond what we're going to come across in this world, but I'm sure he'll take care of that. Well, what are we going to step on? What do you step on, generally? Where is what you step on? Ground. Right under your feet. Right in front of you, right beside you, right behind you. Okay? This is your job. This is your job. Just do your job. And that is what we're called to. Is we learn the lessons. We learn the lessons. One of the lessons is do your job. One of the lessons is take the authority that Jesus gives you. One of the lessons is, is identifying enemies and identifying spiritual wickedness and taking it and stepping on it and trampling it down in your life. And what's under your feet right now, what's in front of you, beside you, behind you, but taking care of what is within your reach. Because that's what God's given you. That's the job he's given you. So we go back to this idea of warfare, starting with you. That's where we get back to, right? And this is something that needs to take place in us. Something that needs to take place in our lives. Something that needs to take place in and through us. Say, look at Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 and verse, I'm going to guess 37. Romans 8, 37. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors with him who loved us. More than conquerors. More than conquerors. And that's who God calls us to be. But how are you going to be more than conquerors with your eyes shut and your ears plugged? How are you going to be more than conquerors if you're not doing your part and treading on the snakes and scorpions that are right in front of you or under your feet or in your family or around your parents or your kids or in, or in your school or at your work, the people that you're seeing every day? You follow me? How are we going to be more than conquerors if we're just ignoring our enemy? as he wreaks havoc on the people around us, people we love and people we care about? How are we going to be more than conquerors if we're just letting him have his way in our lives, destroying us? You know, if the devil's destroying your physical body, if that's what's happening, you need to stop that best you can. You need to take a stand against that even in your own life. What I mean by that? I mean, you need to trample upon snakes and scorpions in your life. You need to pray against the destroyer. You need to pray against the destruction of the enemy. Because it's the devil that comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. That's who it is. And you better make sure, make sure that you're dealing with it. You're dealing with him in your life. Am I saying if you do that, you'll never get sick? Nope. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying you just need to do what you need to do to deal with that in your life. So you need to take care of your business. I need to take care of my business. And if I will take care of my business, I'll take care of the people around me, I will submit to what God has for me, there's life there. There's learning there. There's getting closer to Jesus there. 
Just follow this example there. There's freedom there. There's liberty there. All that stuff is right there. So we need to take our part and do our thing. You go back to David and these people in Moab. Something interesting that happened was that, you read the next verse, that the people that he allowed to live, they said they brought in tributes, they brought in gifts. But not only the rest of his life, but they brought tributes and gifts to whoever the king of Israel was all the way up until Ahab. That's how long they served. That is how long they served. And it's kind of interesting to me that if we'll just take care of business and we'll do things right, on both sides of this, our own submission to taking up our own authority against the enemy, the authority of Jesus that he gives us, you'll see things go right. And they'll keep going right. So I want to encourage you toward that. I want to really encourage you toward taking a stand. I want to encourage you toward being ruthless with your enemies. I want to encourage you toward learning the lesson that God has for us to learn as his people. Even in the New Testament. We've got to recognize we've got some spiritual enemies. We've got to recognize there's demonic forces that are out to steal and to kill and destroy our lives. When you take a stand against it. And I mean really take a stand against it. Not just stomp our feet every now and then and yell. But really take a stand. Time to trample upon snakes and scorpions and over every work of the enemy. It's time to take up the weapons of our warfare that are spiritual against our spiritual enemies. To bring down a stronghold, taking captive every thought into submission to Jesus. And I want to encourage you to check your submission level tonight to Jesus. Your submission level to His Spirit, to His will, His purpose, His plan, His word for your life. Check your level. Let's pray with me. Father, I just I ask you guys tonight as we really look at who we are, what it means to live a life of submission to you and your will and your purposes and your plans for us. And I guess I could use a different word, but really that's what it is. And we lay aside whatever it is we've been holding on to. We lay aside the, the things that we're obstinate about, things that we're stubborn about, when it comes to you. And we just give it all to you. So God, I pray, first off, I pray that you teach us what it is to be Submissive to you. I mean, truly. That your will be done. That your purposes be done. 
that your vision come to pass, and that I would be an active participant in that vision, in that purpose, and in that plan for my life. Your plan. God, I pray that you would teach us authority. I pray you would teach us victory. I pray you would teach us how to fight and win and the things of the Spirit. You would teach us how to trample upon snakes and scorpions and over every work of the enemy. I just ask you, Jesus, that we would respond to the leadings and the prompting and the teachings of your Holy Spirit over our lives and get it done. So God, I ask for those among us that have trouble with this help, have trouble with confrontation, help them, have trouble with this concept of actually going to battle, help them. You just can't ignore such a multitude of teaching and illustrations and verses about what you want to teach us. God, I pray that we'd be effective in casting out demons. We'd be effective in deliverance ministry. We'd be effective in seeing people set free, bondages leaving, chains dropping off, as ministers of your liberty. Start with us. Start with us. The Bible says, resist the devil, he will flee from you. Do it. Start with your own life. Thank you, God. We give Satan no quarter, no place, no rest. Have your way, Jesus. Pray you cleanse our heart, cleanse our mind, cleanse our spirit, cleanse our body. Thank you, Lord. Give you honor tonight and give you praise. We speak victory in Jesus' name. Let's read by saying, Amen. Amen. UCF of Syracuse is a relational gathering of diversity in action. Economics, education, employment, background, and culture span the spectrum as we gather for the purpose of life in Christ. No, me and Christ are homies. That's good. He's really cool, you mm-hmm. know. He's super close, yo. Your homeboy? Yeah. All right. Anyways, so musicians, writers, painters. You know, my cousin's a painter. Yeah? What do you paint? Houses. Oh, man. My cousin, your cousin should hook up. Yeah. So, yeah, painters and other artists express their work through the body of life of this faith community. Like the community that. Yeah, so there's a lot of people. Yeah. No. Started in 1997. That's a long time ago, yo. That's back in the day. That was before I had my eyebrows tattooed on there. I remember that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As an outgrowth of Chaplaincy of Syracuse University, 
UCF continues to gather in the Westcott neighborhood of Syracuse. Oh, me and my homegirls, we walk up and down there all the time. I know, that's our hood. Mm-hmm. So it's in Syracuse, New York, to share the love and hope of Christ. Again, we, we homies. Yeah. 